I discovered something this week that I was not aware of before. And it's something called cowboy wisdom. Have y'all ever heard of cowboy wisdom? In my mind, it, it's very similar to redneck wisdom. All right. So I didn't know it's called cowboy, but here are some things. I looked it up. It's a thing. Here are some of my favorites that I came across. Cowboy redneck wisdom. Life is simpler when you plow around the stump. Now, we don't think there's anything particularly bright about that, but you know non-rednecks who've plowed right over a stump. Next one. This one I love. Meanness don't happen overnight. It takes practice. It takes years and years of practice. You don't get mean overnight. You don't get angry like some people are living angry. That takes lots of practice. Here's another one. I love this one, especially at the holidays. Don't judge people by their relatives. It ain't my fault. I would have left them a long time ago, but they have the same last name. This one. If you do this one, film it. Letting the cat out of the bag is a whole lot easier than putting it back in. That is literal or philosophical, either one, right? But if you literally put a cat in a bag, let it out, and then try to put it back in, please video it because I want to use it as a sermon illustration of not cowboy wisdom, okay? All right. Uh, Here's another one. Don't corner something meaner than you. I can't share the story, but George has shared a story. You can ask George about the time he was cornered and, and, and some people found out he was meaner than they were. Right? Yeah. One of my favorite stories, but I can't share it. I didn't have permission. But you can ask him. All right. Here's, here's, here's the one I really want you to, to lock in on because it applies to what we're going to talk about today. Never miss a good chance to shut up. I'm thinking this might be our next T-shirt. Or I'm going to put it on a business card and, and have it in my pocket because you know there's some times you could just Pull this baby out and say, you should read this. Like 10 minutes ago, you should read this card because you really need to shut up. And the reason reason this is a big deal is because I think that we don't always know as much about other people's lives as we think we know. We We don't have the right to speak into people's lives unless we've walked in their shoes, right? That's my friend Shay. Shay loves being in here, and sometimes Shay just gets all stimulated, and she starts talking to us. And so she's going to go out and just have a good time out there, but I want Shay to be at our church. I remember the first time they came. They, they, they were blown away that we loved them and accepted them, and, and she's one of my favorite people. So never miss a good chance to shut up. We don't know what other people are going through until we walk in their shoes. So, so here's an example. How many of you have heard of this guy, Charles Haddon Spurgeon? Eula says, oh, yes, not just yes, yes. He is one of the leading theologians. Of, of, he actually was, was born in 1834 and only lived 57 years, just short of his 58th birthday. But I, I went to the website because I wanted the, the, the internet because I wanted to find out some more. I've read lots of stuff. I've read quotes and, you know, I've read some of his books. But here's what Wikipedia, that wealth of information, has to say about him. He, he was known as the Prince of Preachers. Now, that is all I took off of Wikipedia because Wikipedia is just normal. I don't even know that they're normal. They're just people that can put anything on there. There's no standards whatsoever, so I don't ever trust Wikipedia. So then I started going to other websites. 
Other websites said this. In 57 years, Charles Spurgeon accomplished three lifetimes of work. And and I'm not kidding. My first thought was hyperbole. Hyperbole is exaggeration that has no no basis in fact. And I'm like, 57 years, three lifetimes. Okay, 114, 168. I'm going, wow. But then, then I started reading. Check this out. Every week he preached four to 10 sermons and I'm going, holy cow, that's too much for me. He read six, not just books, meaty books. I wrote this down, six meaty books a week. He revised sermons for publication, lectured, edited a monthly magazine. And in his spare time, oh, he wrote about 150 books. I wasn't done. I wanted to go to another website. Spurgeon pastored the largest Protestant mega church before anybody knew that term in the world, 6,000 members And he knew the name of all 6,000 people. I can't do it. He directed a theological college. He ran an orphanage. He oversaw 66 Christian charities. One of his quotes, we're not putting this on the screen, but one of his quotes was, I wish it could be said of us that we wasted neither an hour of our time nor an hour of other people's time. It goes on, it says, Spurgeon was also a father and husband. He never sacrificed his family on the altar of ministry. And I'm going, oh my gosh. He was, I'm not making this up, he was so amazingly productive that another website published his weekly calendar so that normal people like you and me could be even more thoroughly impressed with him and depressed about our own lack of administrative ability. It kind of sounds like he was a superhuman Christian. You know, if there were Avengers of the Christian world, he would be Captain England, not Captain America because he's from England, or he would be the Iron Sharpens Iron Man. (laughs) I made that one up. Now listen to this. Charles Haddon Spurgeon is history's most widely read preacher, and then in parentheses, I put it in here, but it's in parentheses, apart from the biblical ones, because, you know, they had an 1,800-year head start, Today, there is available more material written by Spurgeon than any other Christian author, living or dead. One woman was converted through reading a single page of one of Spurgeon's sermons wrapped around some butter she had bought. If that's not enough, Spurgeon read The Pilgrim's Progress at six, the first time at six, and read it over a hundred times. I hadn't read it once. He was a super Christian, if there ever was one. But I want you to learn something about Spurgeon that not many people know today. He suffered intensely. Here's his quote. Check this out. I am the subject of depressions of spirit so fearful that I hope none of you ever get to such extremes of wretchedness as I do. How could someone so successful in the Christian life get depressed? How could, how could they suffer? Well, short answer is that discouragement respects no one. We could put pain in there. Pain respects no one. Go up here to the ER, well, before COVID, go to the ER and, and just look. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter your economic status. People become family in the ER when they're sitting there for hours waiting for word of their loved one. Discouragement respects no one. Now, here's here's what my commentator said this week. 
Discouragement seems to attack the successful far more than the unsuccessful for the higher we claim, the higher we climb, the farther, farther down we can fall. Now, I know, I know talking about pain and suffering is, is a big and serious deal, and we've been talking about it for a month. We've got another week to go. But what I want you to understand is you can move from pain to purpose if you do it God's way. God always has a purpose for your pain. Now, one of my favorite uh-oh, from my, that, that theological television show, The Office, this is one of my favorite scenes. It makes me laugh just thinking about it. Watch Michael Scott. I declare bankruptcy. Okay, that's all I could show because I didn't want our—I didn't want to get kicked off of Facebook. Right after that, he goes back in his office. He's cutting up his credit cards, and Oscar, the financial guy in the office, Oscar comes up and he goes, "Hey, Michael, I just want you to know that you can't just say the word bankruptcy and expect anything to happen." And Michael Scott says, "I didn't say it. I declared it." Now, the reason I bring this up is because there was something that happened back in the 1950s, and, and, and as best we can tell, it didn't, didn't show up until the 1950s, and it's a branch of the church called Name It and Claim It. Name It and Claim It teachers tell us that we can use the power of faith to create our own reality or get what we want. So here's what happens. So Christian faith is defined this way. Go ahead and put that up there if you would, Nate. Christian faith, as biblically defined, is a trust in a holy and sovereign God despite our circumstances. This is Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego in the fiery furnace. Right before they get thrown in, they say, Oh, king, our God is able, but even if he does not, we will not bow to you. Paul said... Go to this, go, I may go to this city if the Lord wills. James says, you shouldn't say we're going to make, we're going to move over here and do this business next year. You should say, if the Lord wills, because I don't know how many of us, Charles Haddon Spurgeon included, knows exactly what God's going to do 12 months from now. I'm trying to, I'm trying to make it through today sometimes, right? So it's redefined from this to this. Next slide. Name it and claim it, faith, is a way of controlling God to give us what we want. Now, hang on. Let me, let me explain this to you. Faith becomes a force, very similar to Star Wars. Use the force, Luke, to get what you want, to make that shot, that impossible shot. Use the force, whereby we can get what we want rather than trusting in God during times of trials and suffering. So the name it and claim it thing says, if you have negative thoughts or are lacking in faith, you will suffer and not get what you want. But on the other hand, if you think positive thoughts and just have enough faith, then you can have health, wealth, and happiness now. I read this article this week. There was this couple that went to this church. The pastor convinced them not to say that their son had diabetes. Don't call your son sick. That's negative. You declare he's not sick. You declare he is healed. And so they withheld his insulin from him for three days and their son died and they were arrested for manslaughter because because some false teacher told them, if you have enough faith, and then I guarantee you, it doesn't say this in the article, but I guarantee you that that pastor said, you didn't have enough faith, it's your fault. That is not biblical. 
While the prosperity gospel and the idea of controlling one's future is very, very appealing to sinful men, it is an insult to a sovereign and holy God. Instead of recognizing his absolute power and his sovereignty as revealed in the Bible, the name it and claim it adherence, they embrace a false God, listen to me, who cannot operate apart from the person's faith. They present a false view of God by teaching. He wants to bless you with health and wealth and happiness, but he cannot do so unless you have enough faith. God's not the key. You are. That is not scriptural. By that line of thinking, God's not in control. Human beings are. What does that make us? Idols. Lowercase g's. God's. Not not the capital G. Not the one the Lord of lords and King of kings. God doesn't depend on our faith to act because you look throughout Scripture, I double, triple dog dare you, however many dogs I got to dare you, to find in Scripture where where it just seems that God blesses people who he wants to bless. He heals people he wants to heal. Even choosing Abraham. Abraham was in the land of idols and there's every indication that Abraham was an idol worshiper when God said, get up and go to a land I'll show you. Abraham did nothing to deserve being chosen by God. The Israelites, the Bible even says, you weren't the biggest, you weren't the strongest, you weren't the most powerful. When I chose you, you were nothing. God blesses whom he will bless. He heals whom he will heal. And another problem with this name it and claim it idea is that that Jesus himself isn't the ultimate treasure. Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 13 that, that the kingdom of heaven is like a man who finds a treasure in his field and he, goes, he buries it, goes back and sells everything he can to get that treasure. Jesus is the treasure, not the things of this life. All they see Jesus as is a way of getting what they want right now. But here's what Jesus said in Matthew 16. Whoever wants to be my disciple must do what? Oh, that is a dirty word to the name it and claim it, folks. Must deny themselves and take up their cross. That doesn't sound very fun. A cross has to do with pain and suffering and dying. Take up their cross and follow me. For who wants to serve, who who wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will, will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? And he's saying, there's no good. I guarantee you there are people in hell today who would trade anything to move to heaven. And let me just say this. God doesn't send people to hell. They choose hell by rejecting the Son. Hell was created for Satan and his demons. But if you live a lifetime of rejecting the Savior, you don't want anything to do with him here, then you don't want anything to do with him in eternity. And he will grant your request by rejecting him. And you get to go to hell based on your choice. What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Now contrast that to the message of the prosperity gospel. Because here's prosperity or the the name it and claim it. Rather than being a message of self-denial, prosperity gospel is one of self-satisfaction. The goal is not to become Christ-like. The goal is having what I want here and now. Clearly contradicting Jesus. The one they say they serve. Now. You want to declare something? You declare what Paul declared. The Apostle Paul declared, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be, what is that word? That sounds fun. If you're going to follow Christ, and and by the way, you know why some people don't preach this? It's not popular. You don't build crowds 
talking about persecution and denying yourself and crosses. I'm not trying to build crowds. I'm trying to lead people to Christ. Because I stand, as much as I like you, I don't stand before you when I finish this life. And the Bible says we will be judged for every careless word we speak. This persecution that definitely contradicts the name it and claim it message that says any suffering we undergo, it's our fault. Lack of faith, it's your fault. The prosperity gospel is so much focused on the things of this world, but John tells us in 1 John 2.15, he says, we're not supposed to love the things in this world. Not yet. That's James 4. And then James goes a step further than John. John says, don't love the things in this world. He says, if, the love, if you love the things of this world, the love of the Father is not in you. James, the half-brother of Jesus, says this. You adulterous people, that's a way to get a crowd. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. You want to be an enemy of God? Then love the things of this world. Being made in the image of God means that we reflect his attributes, not that we can do things only God can do, like speak something into existence. When we go around decreeing and declaring things, we're in danger of putting our will above the Father's will. Because Jesus, when his disciples came to him, they said, Jesus, teach us to pray like John's disciples taught him to pray. And Jesus said, okay, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Where does that say I get rich? Where does that say I don't suffer? It doesn't. This decree and declare teaching says there's something special. Listen to this. Something powerful associated with our thoughts and words. And I'm not saying don't have a positive attitude. I don't like it when you rain on my parade. I might say you need to have a better attitude. You need an attitude adjustment. I'm not saying you, don't get, you can't be happy and think positive thoughts, but that doesn't control your world. We think, or they think, that, that we can declare something and that in itself will change our circumstances, bring us blessings, including prosperity, healing. Instead of praying to God, your will be done. Followers of the Word of Faith movement are taught that if you repeat it enough, it's going to come true. Long before Michael Scott declared bankruptcy, long before England's prince of preachers suffered depression, and long before the name it and claim it, because if you do a study on, on the word of faith, the prosperity gospel, they think it's about the 1950s during the, the Industrial Revolution after World War II. That's when it came, became popular. It's based a lot on Old Testament philosophy because in the Old Testament, if you obeyed, you got blessed. But in the New Testament, <laughs> obedience very often means suffering. There's this guy. He went to the absolute top school in his nation. He had the best teacher of the top school. He was part of, we think he was part of the religious establishment, the top 70 religious people in that country. And then God shows up and calls him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And from that moment on, he had a lifetime of troubles. Here's what he said to the church in Corinth. Now, don't put that up yet. They get distracted. Paul wrote, we have in the New Testament, two letters to the Corinthians. He wrote at least three. We don't have the middle one. So he wrote 1 Corinthians, dealing with some questions. He wrote another letter. We don't have it. Evidently, God didn't think we needed to have that. And then he wrote 2 Corinthians, 
to respond to some problems. And he didn't come. He said, I promise I want to come. He, he said, I'm, I'm going to try to come to you. I'm going to come on my way to Macedonia. I'm going to stay. I'm going to visit you on my way back from Macedonia. That didn't happen. So some people were saying, oh, Paul doesn't keep his word. And so Paul has to write another letter to say, man, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not being wishy-washy. He actually said, if the Lord wills, at the end of, of, sec, of 1 Corinthians, if the Lord wills, I'm going to come and I'm going to do this. So he says, look at this. Now you can put it up there, Nate. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8. We, he's talking about his traveling companions, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure. What are those two words? Far beyond. Look at this. Far beyond our ability to endure. So that, so the man who wrote half of the New Testament said, when I was following Jesus, establishing churches, I despaired of life. You ever been there? Have you ever said to the Lord, I have. Lord, if this is the way it's going to be, I don't want to be here anymore. And the Lord's like, who are you? You know what he said to Job whenever Job whined and complained? He said, where were you when I established the the world? When I hung the earth, the planets, the stars, when I created all of these animals, where were you? And, And Job says, I spoke once, but I'll not do it again. And he says, I spoke twice. I'm I'm done, God. I'm done. And when I whine to God and say, God, if this is the way it's going to be, I don't want to be here anymore. God says, where were you when I established this stuff? Okay, God, I, I didn't mean it. He despaired of life. Indeed, we felt we'd received the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. This is one of my favorite parts of this passage. He says, he has delivered us, so that's past, from such a deadly peril. He will deliver us, that's future. And then look, on him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. That's right now. He's going to deliver us over and over and over again. And then he says, as you help us by your prayers, then many will give thanks on our behalf for the the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. So I want to talk to you just briefly about what God does for you. And the first thing he does is he permits trials, and it is for you. If we believe that God is sovereign, we sing a song, sovereign in the mountain air, sovereign, sovereign, sovereign. That means he's in control. If we believe that, then we can't ever think that suffering is an accident. It's a divine appointment for believers. God allows Christians and non-Christians to suffer so that hopefully non-Christians will see the difference. If we suffer just like non-Christians, we're actually casting dispersions on the name of God. He doesn't say we don't suffer. He says we suffer differently. And when you boil it down, there's really only three, three ways to respond to pain and suffering. First is if nature is in control, this is fate or chance or karma. Please stop saying karma. There is nothing about an, a universal force out there, you're, you're Star Wars people if you believe in karma. It's God. God says you reap what you sow. Now, yes, you may get... Somebody said the other day, they said, you know, my so-and-so is suffering, and I'm not really sad about it. And we all laugh because we're like, yeah, we get it. It's not karma. It's God. If nature is in control, fate or chance, we should just give up because how many of you can control nature? Here's a second option. We're in control. You're delusional. I have to control everything. You can't control your two-year-old. 
Try to make your two-year-old eat something they don't want to eat. Rachel, my favorite thing about Rachel, when she'd be sitting in that high chair and you'd feed her something, she knew what she liked. And you, Janie would try to put a pea in there and cover it up with stuff she liked. She'd stick it in Rachel's mouth and Rachel going. <laughs> For the rest of that day, she wasn't eating anything else. She didn't trust you. She had to sleep to then, then start trusting you again. You can't control your two-year-old. Had a lady the other day tell me that she declared that she was not going to get COVID. I said, good luck with that. I think I got just as much faith as she does, but I got COVID. That's an insult. I, decl- I spoke against COVID. What'd you say? I had a conversation with it, but it still attacked me. If we're in control, then we should just give up. But if God's in control, and he is, we should look up and trust him. That's the biblical way to overcome your trials. That's Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, even if he doesn't. We're not bowing to you. Second thing, God controls trials. Paul said he was weighed down. So another translation of what we just read, he says, I was weighed down. And it's the idea of being a pack mule that is so overburdened that it can't. Dude, you're jumping ahead of me. You see that reaction? They don't listen when you put it up too soon. So don't do the next one yet. So I decided to Google a, a, a donkey that's, that's weighed down. This is comical. This is, I'm like, dude. That's not what he's talking about. When Paul said, I'm weighed down with a burden too great to bear, it was more like this picture. Now we go, Nate. The caption said, this donkey was exhausted and he just laid down. Paul said, I was overburdened with the pains of this world. We actually saw this. And I don't remember who was out there and saw this with me, but one time we were in Haiti and we were on, in the mountain in Jacmel, which is in southern Haiti, and, and we were the church is up on this hill and you can see the ocean down there. It's just spectacular, and it's a dirt road. And there was this, I don't even remember if it was a lady or a kid, but, but every day they would take their mule down the hill loaded with stuff that they would walk into town. And town was like, town was a 20-minute drive. I don't know how long it took them to get there walking with a mule that was overburdened. But one day the mule, laid down right in the road full of everything just laid down and that I think it was a lady I think it was an adult she was beating that I think I don't know if she's cussing because I didn't know enough Creole to know but she was yelling at that donkey pulling on that donkey she had all kinds of be- that donkey was done wasn't going anywhere when when the donkey wasn't done donkey got up and walked off it was a long time that's the idea Paul says I was overburdened It was too much to bear. He said, but I learned to rely on God because God knows how much we can take. Whenever God puts his children in the the furnace, you better believe God keeps his hand on the thermostat and his eye on the the temperature. In fact, I'll probably use this next week, but in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, it says that we go through light and temporary afflictions so that the, the proven genuineness of our faith which is more valuable than gold, might be on display. God needs to to show you you're not in control. And he needs to show you that he is. And we got to trust him. Third thing God does for you, God enables us in trials. 
He has to show us how weak we are by putting on us more than we can handle. So one of the lies we looked at several years ago, God never said that. God never said that he would not put on you more than you can handle. God always puts on you more than you can handle. Because if you can handle it, you don't need God. So, so God doesn't give you a storehouse or a bank account of grace. He doesn't give you an ATM card. What's that? Oh, it's my ATM card of grace. Well, what are you going to do with that? I'm going to go get enough grace to help me. Because he doesn't want you to go to your ATM account. He wants you to go to him. Does that make sense? You don't get to store up grace. Oh, man, God's good today. I'm going to put it over here because then I'm going to look to my grace and not to God. God doesn't want that. Paul had an incredible resume. God didn't want him to trust in his resume. Paul declared something. So if you've read uh, Romans 12, Paul says, I had a thorn in the flesh and I prayed about it. And, and the, it means the words mean he kept on praying, kept on praying. I begged the Lord to remove this thorn in the flesh, but God said no. So that is a legitimate answer from your heavenly father. He can tell you no. And then he said, God said, my grace is sufficient for you. So Paul declares something amazing. He declares, that is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses. Wait a minute, what? That ain't in the name it and claim it documents. I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. What? Because he says, then for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. It's when you and I die to ourselves that the resurrection power of God can come into our lives. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Jesus said, you either humble yourself or you're going to be humbled. Those are only two options. If you humble yourself, God gives you all kinds of grace. So, so this idea of dying to yourself, it's like when um, um, Abraham and Sarah, Hebrews eleven twelve actually says, Abraham was as good as dead when Isaac was born. He was 100 years old. His wife was 90 years old. Dude, I can't, I'm 57. I can't imagine if Janie were to get pregnant right now, I'd be saying, Lord, I'm done. Take me home. I'm too old for that. 100 years old. I love grandkids because I can send them home. Pop, pop, will you play with me? Yeah, buddy, I got about 30 more minutes before your daddy's going to be here. Wear me out. <laughs> he was as good as dead. When you trust God, it means that you pray, you search the scriptures, you seek godly counsel. And you should do it even more when you're suffering, when you're going through difficulty. See, God is able. We say this all the time. God is able, but we need to be available. That's the next slide there. And, and do you know how you get available to God? I'm going to give you a secret to the Christian life. You read the Bible. You pray. You seek godly counsel. You get attached to a local body called the church and you serve in that body. That's who's available to God and that's who God rescues and delivers. That's the number four. God delivers us from our trials. Paul looked past. There's God delivering. He looked present. He's going to continue to deliver. He looks future. He's going to deliver in the future. So Paul's declaring God is deliverer. But did you know God doesn't always deliver immediately or the way you want him to? So James, the half-brother of Jesus, you know how God delivered him? He allowed James's head to be chopped off. He got to go to heaven. 
He wasn't headless long, but James, <laughs> James lost his head. Peter, an angel goes and wakes him up and causes the chains to fall off of him, opens the prison doors, walks him out. He thinks it's a dream until the angel leaves and he wakes up and he goes, I just got delivered. James lost his head. I'm walking over to the Christians right now. Sometimes God delivers us. I'm saying this again. Sometimes God delivers us from our trials. Other times he delivers us in our trials. Both of James and Peter were delivered, but in very different ways. Number five, God is glorified through our trials. When Paul reported that what God had done for him, people just praised God. Last week, when it kind of took me surprise by surprise, when I just said that, that we'd raised over $10,000 for, for Lake Charles, there was this, this excitement in the group. If someone is suffering and God delivers them and we come in and we say, hey, we've been praying for months and this is what God has done. You know what people do? Yes! Our God is able! We don't tell him what to do. We ask him and we trust him. What you don't, need, what you don't understand is that serving God often involves suffering. I was, I was reading just this morning in my, in my devotional and it said that, that Warren Wearsby is this incredible theologian. He and another older pastor were listening to a young pastor. This young pastor gives this incredible sermon. Well, he said, he said uh, very, I don't remember the word. It wasn't incredible. It was, it was very eloquent. That's what it was. He said, gave a very eloquent sermon. And, and Wearsby, this theologian, turns to his friend. And he goes, something was missing. The other guy says, yes, and it won't be there until his heart has been broken. He said, after he has suffered a while, he will have a message worth listening to. I wrote that down. I need to share that. See, suffering can increase our faith. It can. It doesn't automatically. It can strengthen our prayer life. If your suffering doesn't strengthen your prayer life, you had not suffered enough. Because when, when God's all you got, it can draw us closer to other believers. We have to share our burdens, the Bible tells us to share our burdens. If, if you're one of those people that keeps it all to yourself, you're not making yourself, you're not giving yourself the ability that the church has to come alongside you and carry you during difficulty. And then suffering can glorify God. It can, but the choice is yours. So no matter what the source is, whether it's you're hurting because there's a broken world, you're hurting because there's spiritual attack. You're hurting because of someone else's sin. You're hurting because of your own sin. Regardless of all that, God can take all of that. He's the master at bringing glory and honor to his name, not yours. So be very, very careful declaring something to God. What I'm going to declare is if you follow God, you're going to suffer persecution. Paul said that. Jesus said in this life, you're going to have trouble. Jesus said that. He said, but take heart, I've overcome the world. I'm going to declare what scripture says and trust God to do some amazing things. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your love and your grace. Thank you that, that if we will turn to your scripture and become people of your word, we can have the power of your word. You said your word would never return to you void, but would accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. You said it's like rain uh, that comes to the ground. It re renews and, and replenishes that. God, let your word do that for our hearts, especially in times of suffering, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.